Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. The recently aired HBO documentary series Alan v. Farrow was described by the network as a four-part show that, quote, goes behind the years of sensational headlines to reveal the private story of one of Hollywood's most notorious and public scandals, the accusation of sexual abuse against Woody Allen involving Dylan, his then seven-year-old daughter with Mia Farrow, their subsequent custody trial, the revelation of Allen's relationship with Farrow's daughter, Soon Yi, and the controversial aftermath in the years that followed, end quote. That sounds neutral and objective, but as many reviewers have noted, Behind that facade, Alan V. Farrow is actually a heavily torqued attack on Alan. In the left-leaning Guardian newspaper, for instance, Hadley Freeman's article about the series was titled, Alan V. Farrow is Pure PR. Why else would it omit so much? In the article, Freeman describes the long list of details that the directors seem to have selectively omitted and described what results as, quote, as biased and partial as a political candidate's advertisement vilifying an opponent in election season, end quote. Now, if you're looking for someone who's going to treat the Alan Farrow dispute as a he-said-she-said argument in which we'll never know the real truth, well, maybe this isn't the podcast episode for you, because I don't see it in those terms. The claims against Alan were the subject of two major investigations in the 1990s, and both reached the same conclusion, that there was no convincing evidence that Alan had abused anyone. The question to my mind, rather, is why a mainstream network such as HBO is resurrecting old claims that never had any merit in the first place. To discuss that question this week, my guest is veteran writer Daphne Merkin, formerly of The New Yorker and numerous other elite publications. She has known Woody Allen, albeit mostly in passing, for several decades, and in 2018 she wrote a widely discussed article in New York Magazine called Introducing Sunyi Previn, in which the longtime wife of Woody Allen finally broke her silence about the many ways in which her story and her husband's had been obscenely misrepresented. Daphne Merkin and I shared our opinions about these subjects by Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. I'm not going to pretend that I'm some sort of neutral commentator on this. All Mia Farrow's accusations were investigated. There was a specialized unit at Yale University that investigated it. How is it that we're still even talking about these accusations? I myself am curious to know why HBO took this on. I think some of the answer has to do with the fact, if one can think of it this way, in the age of social media, there is such a thing as a different kind of, if you want to call it soft power. Mia Farrow has enormous amounts of it, as, of course, does Ronan. And I think they are capable of simply getting their way. Mia Farrow, very gifted actress, wonderful actress. Very but has led a very troubled life as a parent. You just said that she has a lot of power and credibility. I mean, not to take anything away from her as an artist, but how does this person have any credibility? There, one is dealing with gullibility of people, a certain lack of sophistication when it comes to a celebrity's narrative. Woody Allen himself would say and has said that she's a very gifted actress. She was in 13 of his movies. So talking about rage, 
I don't know if some of the rage was also impelled by the fact that essentially her career was over. This is dealing with the question of her rage. The question of people's response to her is like up for grabs. My most disturbing conversation, I, I mean, with someone named, you may know her, her name, Janine Sue Urson, the professor of law at Harvard Law School. I asked her, I mean, I said, there's something that makes no sense to me here. Through legal due process, there was not just one, but two investigations. There was the Yale investigation, which took seven months. And at the same time, or almost at the same time, there was a New York state child welfare investigation. So there were two inquiries into the case. Both came to the same conclusion that it wasn't credible that Woody Allen had molested Dylan. I spoke to two nannies. There were many nannies in this family. I spoke to two nannies. What they told me was eventually taken out of the piece in New York Magazine, but apparently Dylan's nanny, Monica Thompson, eventually retracted a statement she had made and actually said that Woody Allen was the better parent and all the things are not true. Even if you told me Woody Allen's a lousy parent, plenty of lousy parents who don't rape kids. Go on social media and say, look, there's no evidence that Woody Allen molested anybody. People say, don't you think it's creepy that he ended up marrying Sunyi? And then I stop and say, wait a second. There are many things in life that are creepy that are not <laughs> molestation. Exactly. But there you have the brilliantly handled by Mia and company, the conflation of Dylan and Sun Yi, which they're not the same. Mia Farrow herself married at, I don't know, age 17 or 18, Frank Sinatra. But the truth of the matter is, she was 21 or older when Woody Allen married her. They've lived happily, from what I can see, as a couple, as a married couple for 25 years. But somehow that has been conflated with Dylan. I know all this basically from reading the article you wrote in New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what was the reaction you got to that? Because people who support Mia Farrow would be angry about it. Because what they want is a narrative that Woody Allen's just a big pervert and maybe still has Sun Yi locked up in some sex dungeon. Tell me about the reaction you got from that article. I had very close friends. Four of them wrote me this joint, very articulate email about why I shouldn't write this piece. It would tarnish my reputation forever. Are they basically saying, like, you're picking the wrong side in yeah, this fight? Yeah, or you're picking a side that is basically... Forget wrong or right, since in the end there is something Rashomon-like about this story in that, believe it, not believe it, no one was there. I mean, I happen on a million grounds not to believe it. For those who have seen the movie Rashomon, there are a number of equally or at least approximately equal credible narratives that emerge from that intentionally so. But if you read Moses Farrow's description of the architecture of the home in Connecticut where this child rape is supposed to have taken place, or child molestation. The entire story just doesn't make any sense whatsoever based on the architectural principles of the house. You're asked to believe this crazy stuff in a house bursting with life, full of people. Woody Allen smuggled this, I think, seven-year-old at the time. Up a ladder, there's like the area itself where the ladder is, like this people could walk in any time. For the purpose of engaging in an act, a pedophilic act that he had never done before in his life. I never did again. Because pedophilia is compulsive, repetitive. 
tragically, people do it when they're 18, they do it when they're 30, they do it when they're 80. Like it's, right. This is one of the great tragedies of pedophilia, is this, this evil sickness that afflicts people throughout their lives. The idea of <laughs> someone late into middle age is suddenly like, hey, I think I'll go to the house of this woman who despises me, full of people who are related to me, and find the seven-year-old kid and do these horrible things. Kurosawa himself, if he were here, he would insist we are not permitted to invoke Rashomon in the discussion of this conversation. It's not Rashomonian. It's something else. These people who said, don't do it, you're going to hurt your reputation. Reporting facts will hurt your reputation? That's cultish. But as this Harvard Law professor said to me, I went and looked at this to, to see if I remembered it correctly. She said, and I think this has a lot to do with it, you know, we're in a social justice moment, whatever that phrase turns out to really mean. And so this professor of law said to me, at this moment, lots of people believe that you should believe the accuser. And then I said to her, two official investigations said there was no abuse. And she said, and which sort of horrified me, she said, there's legal justice that occurs through the legal system. There are other kinds of justice. It's a mistake to equate the legal system with knowledge, with the truth. And I think that's it's sort of like a intellectually deeply suspect version of cultural relativism. Court of public opinion, whatever it once meant, now means social media. And I think in the end, people go by their hunches. They looked at the narratives, the photos. This was saintly Mia Farrow, who luckily for her, is saintly looking, who adopted all these children. And Woody Allen went and had an affair with one of these adopted children, then eventually married her. You know, I never thought about the, the fact that a lot of this has to do with Mia Farrow does look angelic. Mm -hmm. If Mia Farrow looked like Fran Drescher, we would not be having this conversation. <laughs> I agree. As both Woody Allen and Sun Yi have said, she's obviously very pretty, very charming, very smart. I mean, I think she managed to steal one husband, Andre Previn. Andre Previn's ex <laughs> didn't have nice things to say about Mia Farrow. No, and she's sung a great song, written a great song about them. Even watching these two episodes, I personally find Mia Farrow's pseudo-sweet voice a little simpering for me, but I, I can see watching her. She conveys this ethereal... Well, she's an actress. Yeah, above the vulgarities of life. When I think about my worst breakups, when I was mad at people and they were mad at me, th there is a moment in some breakups, I don't know if it ever got that bad with me, but where if you could bring lightning down from the heavens... Right. And if somebody said to you, this person's going to go off and have a fairy tale life, and that enrages you, and then you say, but wait a second, you can just say this one thing or make this one allegation and, and his life will be right. destroyed... That's a very powerful thing. And even if that thought of vengeance passes after a few weeks, once you're in, you're in. As, as much as I, I think it's terrible what's happened to Woody Allen or these, these nonsense accusations, I kind of feel sorry for her because I feel on some level, maybe it's, it's the most obvious level, it's the level of cognition. She knows that she's made all this stuff up, but she has to stick with it. And she's lost Moses over it. I feel bad for her because she's a prisoner of this life. There, I disagree with you. My sense of her, which is based on nothing other than I did read her own memoir 
interview people about her who are all scared of her. The nannies, someone else didn't want to go on the record, a friend of Sun Yi, a former assistant of Woody Allen, said he she had always been afraid of her. I read and loved Woody Allen's memoir. Mm-hmm. Woody Allen himself has a weakness for psycho women. So there's a scene in Woody Allen's memoir. It, I can't get it out of my head. This is this is not Mia Farrow. This is like 17 Girlfriends Before Mia Farrow. But mm-hmm. he's it's actually one of the great loves of his life. Woody Allen at the time, he was extremely young. He was in a terrible relationship. And he met this woman who they, they went to a restaurant. He clearly describes it as one of the most important romantic moments of his whole life. And the way he describes it, it's clear that actually many romantic scenes in his movies are, are seeking to recapture that. Right. But anyway... There's one scene where she's, at this time, she's living with Woody Allen, and this food delivery guy comes to the door because they'd ordered food, and I forget what it was, like something like he forgot one thing. Mm-hmm. She started like screaming at this guy, and she wouldn't pay him, basically acted like the kind of person who makes a scene in a restaurant because they could serve the wrong kind of vodka. Right. And everyone in the restaurant is looking at the guy who's with her, or the woman who's with the guy who's making the scene, and thinking like, how could anyone ever live with this person? Right. I read that scene in the book, and at that moment i thought if woody allen sticks with this woman because i was reading it like a novel because i didn't know how it turned out then shame on him and he did he stuck with and he i think there's a moment of self-awareness where he says i know what you're thinking like how could i stay with this woman right he made some throwaway line about sex but the kind of guy who stays with that woman i'm like what do you expect and and it sounds like woody allen has been with a lot of women who do that kind of thing well he was for a long time as you know with diane keaton who i also profiled and is certainly not nuts She's a very strong, interesting woman. She's the woman in the bow tie. Yes. I mean, I did refer to him in my New York piece as a somewhat or bordering on Aspergian. I don't think he's emotionally, enormously in touch with what he's feeling. I also think he's passive. Mia Farrow went after him. He told me her first choice was Mike Nichols. Yeah, who's a neighbor in Connecticut. Yes. I once said to him... How come you were so attracted to her? And he said, well, she's beautiful. I mean, they did keep those separate residences. I don't know how super involved they were, certainly not by the end. The real issue, frankly, watching the documentary is you wonder why she stayed with him if she felt about him what she says. Part of it, as I was reading, it was like, this is what happens when people have too much money. Because the reason they were able to persist in this weird twilight of a relationship is that they both had enough money for their own fancy New York apartments. If you turn these people into middle-class people and force them under one roof, their relationship will be over in 20 minutes. Right. you got to share the same bathroom with someone. Things get to a head pretty quick. True. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. 
It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. 30 or 40 years ago, you and I, maybe we'd sit down to watch a documentary. And it might have been like, oh, let's see what this documentary is about. But now, by the time a documentary about a serious subject comes out, or it's controversial, we've all read articles about it, we've read tweets about it. So much leaks out so quickly. Maybe even footage from the right. documentary is leaked out. So going into watching this documentary, presumably you'd already heard that this was going to be a hatchet job on Woody Allen, right? In The Guardian, probably the best piece I've read on the whole issue. In The Guardian, okay. She writes, well, Hadley Freeman. It says, Allen versus Farrow is pure PR. Why else would it omit so much? And she's knowledgeable, which I wasn't, about the two directors. Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick. And apparently the two directors, which I didn't know, one of them calls himself an activist filmmaker. They have been criticized in the past for, quote, putting advocacy ahead of accuracy in their 2015 documentary about campus rape, Hunting Ground, which used discredited data. It's possible to be a good activist and a good documentary filmmaker. Yes. Michael Moore sometimes has done a good job on that, and I know conservatives who have done a good job. Well, supposedly, they approached Woody Allen and Sunyi late to ask if they were interested in commenting, and they were not. But truthfully, they could have approached many other people. There are only pro-MIA people in this. Is Moses Farrow in it? Because he wrote the definitive defense. Right, he did, which was paid absolutely no attention to at the time, I remember. And he, he, was, he was in that house. He was in that house, and I've talked to him, and he's now very much part of Woody Allen and Sun Yi's family. He's in it as a little boy, and so far one hasn't seen him more grown up. And I think the second episode ends... Somewhere that Mia Farrow gets the family together, tells them of the horror of the photos and the Sunyi relationship, and Moses says he never wants to see Woody Allen again, to whom he was very close. What Mia did, that itself is like a really abusive thing to do. Very. If you're a mother and you want to protect your kids, you're not going to lie to them, but you don't stage it like the reveal scene in no, some... I, I totally agree, and that is why my conclusion, I don't think she thinks about what her effect is on other people, including her children. Of all the scenes, that one of, one of the most chilling, I think she used her children, the ones she related to. I don't think she related that well to the adopted children. One thing I noticed, oddly, in the documentary is when, when you see scenes of Connecticut and the kids in the very nice-looking lake, they're mostly the non-adopted kids. To her credit, she took on some really medically troubled kids, but then she would make weird decisions. Right. She kept changing their names. It was a construction for her. I don't know how much reality is in it, and as someone who barely survived a large family of six, I don't admire either that she adopted that many children or that some of them had serious medical conditions, because if you're going to do that, 
you need to be enormously large-hearted, attentive. I mean, if you believe Moses, Thaddeus, who was one of the adopted kids, who was a paraplegic and wore braces, Mia kept insisting he could try and walk without them. And in general, paid no attention to him. I talked to his high school teacher in my interviewing for my piece, and she said no one came to his high school graduation. I don't find it admirable on any level. I think it it was all part of a fantasy of herself as the redeeming saint, and somehow these children were supposed to fit into her fantasy. And if they didn't, woe unto the children. But but much of Mia's life seems to have existed in fantasy, including the accusations Like the very idea that Woody Allen was going to take his child up the attic to play with a train. There was no electric train in the attic. And the detail of the train apparently comes from the lyric to a song by Dory Previn. It does. Whose husband left her for Mia in 1970. There's this whole like sort of incest thing in the song. Called With My Daddy in the Attic by Dory Previn and is about incest and molestation. It's the same album with the song about Mia that Dory Previn wrote, Beware Young Girls, which was about Mia's affair with Andre Previn. I think she has a mixture of like a would-be saintly and gothic imagination. Doesn't Woody in his memoir talk about the deranged valentine she sent? Yeah, with the pins. Like little mini daggers. Well, that's nine and a half weeks stuff. The rage in the beginning is comprehensible. But this is now four decades of vindictiveness. Right after she said it, she could never go back. That's why I feel sorry for her, because she knows she can't go back. I don't think she thinks she fabricated all of this, not at this point. I don't think she sticks to it because she thinks I must stick to it. I think she doesn't have the psychological, if you want to call it superego, to know where the difference between, between being manipulative and being sincere I must say in my piece about Sunyi, a lot was taken out because of fear of Ronan, particularly. It's it's very one-sided. Like, there's a lot of garbage that gets thrown at Woody Allen that seems to be very legally problematic. How come Woody Allen doesn't just start suing people? Good question, which I've never asked him. I don't think it's his, as they say, M.O. I think there's a part of him that for a long time thought this would go away. His book is very interesting. The first maybe 250 pages is funny and lighthearted. And then there's this phase shift. And the last maybe 150 pages are this scathing, highly detailed, highly evidenced denunciation of the campaign of lies against him. Has anyone tried to sue Woody Allen over his book? I have written many, many pieces in my life, including about, I think, the most litigious organization that exists, which is the Kabbalah Center. Oh, are they litigious? Oh, when I wrote about them for the Times, they were very quick to threaten a lawsuit. Really? So they're like the Scientologists of the Jewish community? <laughs> I have never had an experience close to the experience I had writing the piece for New York in terms of what I thought was excessive concern. I can give you one example. Sure. Very, very late in the day, I had to come in and sit with two lawyers from New York and go over every single detail. And I was on the New Yorker staff for close to six years, which is vetting nuts. And 
I had never seen this kind of caution. The piece was basically set to go. I mean, I remember sitting in my editor's office, Ronan or someone, I don't know how it happened, that they had found an essay that I had written in a book called The Fame Lunches, a collection of essays. And the title essay is about wounded celebrities that I identified with celebrities I thought were really wounded. And one of them was Woody Allen. I talk about a lunch, emphasis on one lunch that I had with Woody Allen, whom I met anyway because he wrote me a fan letter when I was a young writer at the New Republic for a review I did of a book by Jane Bowles, which most people would never have heard of. Somehow this thing came in that I was a besotted fan. And I said to the editor, not only am I not a besotted fan, you know, he would write me once a year or I would write him something. We would meet for a drink once or twice a year. I was never invited to his famous, large Christmas and New Year's parties. So I had written, I have known Woody Allen over four decades. This had to be changed, which I said was going to be totally used, and it was, to friends with Woody Allen. There's a big difference saying I have known someone for for four decades from saying I've been good friends with this person. Of course, I would be seen as complicit. And then that was, I thought, Ronan's triumph. The piece, to the extent it was criticized, it was all around that issue. But you don't call someone you see once a year a very good friend. And there were years I never saw him. And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin. I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, Bittrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. Speaking of friendships, you talked about these people who you knew, maybe they were friends, who would kind of warn you yes. about doing this piece. Have you lost real friendships? Like, has this affected your personal life? Good question. No, it's a subject I stay away from. I'm thinking of, in particular, one friend, because I get too much into an argument, why are you willing to believe all this, we should listen to the woman, except when it comes to Sun Yi. I think it has marked me, but I already had marked myself with writing 
you know, a piece questioning Me Too in the Times. So there's a woman involved here who's at the center of it, and her name is Sun Yi. Mm-hmm. And people are treating her like she's some automaton. Right. By now she's a middle-aged woman. Right. And you kind of treated her as someone with autonomy. Tell me about your relationship with her. I think I was expecting a very different person from all these descriptions. She's very funny, charming in a certain kind of way, resilient as can be, intellectually absorbed, curious, Every time I've loved a book, Woody often reads it, and she does too. I found her straightforward. She wasn't someone who, if I said, don't you have good memories of Mia? She said, I don't. I really don't. But on the other hand, she said, but there were admirable things about Mia that I wish she would have passed on. She's a survivor in in many ways. Which makes sense given her backstory. When she was in Korea, it was it was hand-to-mouth. Underlyingly, there is some racist undertone to this, that she's Korean. I think there's a lot of dismissal of her in a sort of instinctual way. Putting aside all this nonsense, they're actually, like, pretty happy. Yeah. I think I wasn't expecting so much equality. Or as he says, you know, if you want to know who runs things, it's Sun Yi that they palpably enjoy each other. Sort of like the Six Wives of Henry VIII, where women are supposed to fall into a category of shrew or or wench or nurse. or Right. But it sounds like this wasn't the case here. It was actually like a fairly well-rounded relationship. Yeah. I think he called it a lucky accident because they didn't think it was going to last. Neither of them did in the beginning. I think at some point he fell in love with her. She, and she certainly fell in love with him. I know when I have seen them, I thought... They make a convincing case for marriage. (laughs) I think that's the highest compliment you could ever pay anybody. Right. Daphne Merkin, thank you so much. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.